0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Common Room Philosophy. I'm your host, Toby Tremlett, and today I'm welcoming onto the show, Miles Leeson. Miles is the Director of Research at the Iris Murdoch Research Centre at Chichester University and the host of the Iris Murdoch Society podcast. If you enjoy this episode, I'd highly recommend checking out that podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing the novelist and philosopher Iris Murdoch, the links between her explicitly philosophical work and her literature, and her answer to the question, can fiction help us see the world as it really is? I think this is an important question because it often seems that fiction has a troubled place within what Murdoch might call the scientifically minded empiricism of our culture. If we think of science as the only valid way to discover reality, then what does fiction become? It could still be seen as an entertaining expression of personal voice or fantasy, but it would have a very dubious claim to revealing reality. This episode will explore Murdoch's response to this question through her philosophy and her literature. But first, good morning, Miles.
1: Hello, Toby. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no problem. It's good to have you. For my first question, I'd just like to ask what first got you interested in philosophy?
1: I think seriously interested in philosophy, um, probably at undergraduate level. I didn't study philosophy at undergraduate level. Um, I read history, but um, we were encouraged to take uh, modules outside of our discipline. And um, I took some anthropology. I took some uh, poetics, but I also took some philosophy of religion classes. And I think that's got me interested in philosophy in a major way. At that point, and then when I moved on to um, post uh, philosophy became uh, much more important to me. So yeah, I think just kind of doing the basics, really, um, as a kind of an add-on to my main, uh, my main subject, undergraduate level. That's re- that mm. really got me interested in, in philosophy at that point in time. But it wasn't until um, postgrad that I really got interested in uh, the philosophy and, and indeed the fiction of, uh, of Murdoch.
0: Right, right. Yeah, what, what first you got you interested in literature as well?
1: Um, I think that's a much earlier much earlier love really Mm. Uh, I guess as so many people do from childhood from being read to by my parents um, from having kind of a free run at the books at home, going to the library very regularly, Mm -hmm. um, sort of forcing my mum to take me to (laughs) the library quite regularly and doing sort of summer reading schemes and those sorts of things uh, which are great so I I had a real kind of upbringing in all sorts of literature, nothing was kind of off the table I guess so I I would say that the the, re- the reading that I was doing was connected to kind of maybe childhood classics at the time, but also I, I guess thinking about uh, novelists that we might might think of as um, as canonical or kind of um, important to, uh, to the Western canon and to the tradition. Um, and then just through my teenage years, just 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 build, building on that really, and just being a, a pretty voracious mm. reader, uh, and then it really and really enjoying the study of it at, at school and at college as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, with that in mind, if you could send a book back to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? Would you start your Iris Murdoch reading earlier, or is there something else that would...
1: Uh, that would be. Fu- I guess that would be fun. Um, yeah, I might do. I might do. I think I've, I've got a lot, of, um, a lot of friends connected to the Murdoch world who read um, The Unicorn or The Bell very early on and, um, and said it, um, it, it changed their life. I think reading The Bell, for me, in my early 20s, so it changed the direction mm. of my life. I suppose if I was sending one book back, especially if I was sending a book of philosophy, I'd probably send um, Brian McGee's Men of Ideas back mm. to myself. I think that's such an important book um, for when philosophy was taken far more seriously, generally in the uh, in the culture. Mm-hmm. And of course, in in that book, Iris is the only woman, and she talks about philosophy and literature. And it's lovely that that was that's then been included in a collection of her essays called Existentialists and Mystics. Yeah, but there's so many. There are some great, great sort of uh, mid 20th century philosophers in there talking. Um, to McGee in quite uh, easy to understand terms about you know the the big figures in philosophy and the, and the big ideas. So I guess for philosophy that's the book I'd send back.
0: That's great. I think you can also find the audio version of that on YouTube and Spotify. So you can. I'll, I'll, I'll you link can, to that yeah. in the show notes. Cool. So to move on to the to the body of the podcast, our first questions are to sort of get to know Murdoch for people who haven't heard of her before. So. The first question is just, who was Iris Murdoch?
1: Well, uh, I, uh, for me, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, I think. A real polymath, as we're talking about on this podcast, primarily about philosophy. I'd I have to say that she's um, a kind of an outlier uh, in some regards in philosophy in the, the mid-20th century and, and moves very much mm. against the kind of uh, Oxford analytical tradition that's, that's happening at the time. But she's um, Anglo-Irish, born in Ireland in uh, in 1919. Uh, and brought up in a kind of a, a middle class Protestant background, um, she moves to um, to London um, pro- before she's one with with both her parents. An only child, um, encouraged by her father to read the kind of the the, the the classics, Treasure Island, Kim, Alice in Wonderland. Her parents are very forward thinking. She goes to very forward thinking schools, the Froebel Demonstration School. Then she goes on to badminton, which is a very liberal school at that point in time, very much connected to the uh, to the the growing. Cause of uh, refugees, the United mm. Nations, those those sorts of things really impact her, and, and as does the Quakerism of her headmistress at the time. Then she wins an open s- exhibition to Somerville, and she throws herself into study, into the uh, she studies mods and greats. She's inspired by the classics class of Edward Frankel, uh, Donald mckinnon's philosophy classes, but she joins the Irish Society, and most importantly, I think she joins the Communists as well. At that point in time, she says it's the first thing that she does. Mm. This is at Oxford. This is at Oxford. Yeah, so it's the first thing she does when she goes up to Oxford is join the Communist Party, and you know she she does go through a major political change throughout her life. Um, she leaves communism behind, becomes a socialist, and ultimately becomes an admirer of Thatcher's policies in the 1980s. Some of them, mm. I would say, and some people got quite disappointed with her and saw as a, a reactionary to her earlier earlier beliefs. But um yeah, a, a novelist, twenty um twenty six novels, um winner of various prizes, including the Booker for the sea the Sea. Her philosophy now, I think, in the last five or ten years, um as is becoming even more widely respected. I don't I think perhaps it wasn't seen as um her major contribution to cultural life um during mm. her during a you know, during her lifetime. Um but now it is, I think there's there's a real sea change in how um philosophy departments and you know and the subject in general is, is perceiving her and of course she's friends at, um, at during her undergraduate years and indeed later with um, um the quartet that will go on and, and be so important to um, women's philosophy in the 20th century along with um, that's mary midgley philippa foot and elizabeth Anscombe. Mm-hmm. so yeah she has a, a wonderful life um marriage, john bailey 1956 um professor of literature at oxford of course and they have their oxford life but she has her london life she has she travels widely, she has a variety of different relationships, friendships and um, romantic relationships as well with men and women. And the people that she meets and the ideas that she's formulating all find their way into, into the fiction. Mm. So it's um, all, of, all of her novels, and I know we're going to go on and talk about this later on, are imbued with, with, with her life and her ideas. Um, even though, of course, she says she doesn't draw from life, mm-hmm. but, and, and yet there is so much, I think there's so much of her and, and her her circle and her ideas going, going on within the novels.
0: Brilliant, thank you. So yeah, you mentioned that she did philosophy, but it wasn't so recognised during her life as her main contribution to society. Sure. What were her primary concerns in philosophy? And, you know, and, and also which of those are being picked up today?
1: Sure. So I, I guess it's probably easiest if I talk through um, her career and think about how yeah she sort of yeah. reacts or maybe even rails against indeed those those four women rail against particular ideas that um Hare and aj are, are, are talking about and she re- so what she would re- retains i guess is a strong sense of the value of metaphysics and how that can provide kind of a structure for moral reflection but she also appreciates i think Wittgensteinian um critiques of metaphysics at that um, at that point in time and her her main tutor at oxford at the time donald mckinnon um who she remained close with throughout her life is a uh was rather a, a philosophical theologian and um, he encouraged her in, in thinking in in this way in a kind of a less what we might deem a less sort of positivistic direction i guess so there are Particular accounts of ethics um, that are formulated in Oxford in the in the 30s and 40s, and indeed later, and indeed perhaps still hold sway later on in the 20th century. Um, there are several um, kind of assumptions, I guess, that um, that Murdoch wants to re- reject, and this this idea that a, f- a number one, I guess, that a, a fact can never a- entail a value. Um, Murdoch says that um, you know you've got you've got we've got to think about this. Um, importantly mm. um, that perhaps it's the most important argument in modern moral philosophy as she said in in, in her essay metaphysics and ethics that um the se- secondly that moral agents all inhabit the same shared world of facts um she argues against that that values thirdly that values are not part of the world um that they're not that um you know that, of, that situations present no moral issues for the agent um this is something that um that she you know stuart hampshire and um, and Hare uh, suggest but she argues about um questions about i guess the um what the subject matter of ethics is and how we go about talking about it how do we talk about value how do we describe the the human world can we talk about talk about the human world is it just in, empirical or um does it have to be inherently ethical another really important point i think is this idea of the individual's consciousness um, and how important that is, how important inner reflection is, um, for thinking about, um, about how we, how we go about making choice. Of course, Mur- Murdoch thinks mm. it's all, of, it's, it's really important that we think about vision, that we have, if we have the correct vision, then actually choices just come naturally to us. Metaphysics can also be an, an inherently intellectual project that mm-hmm. actually it's worth talking about. And of course, she does this, uh, throughout, throughout her career leading right up to her major work, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. So those those are some of the major points that I'd like to kind of, sort of promote, I guess, in in what what Murdoch's kind of um, general ideas are, her primary concerns in philosophy.
0: Brilliant, yeah. I, I think when it comes to today's discussion, her ideas around vision are particularly important, and especially how vision linked to morality and this this kind of moral perception. Would you be able to say a little bit more about? what Murdoch means when she talks about vision in the context of morality. What is it to see a moral situation more clearly, with more clarity?
1: Yeah, sure. So she writes a really important essay called Vision and Choice and Morality in 1956. And she says that actually um, a, an individual's consciousness is important because it's there it's, it, and it's working all the time. And actually, it's not about these acts that we do, that characterize us it's actually about the vision that we have about others and this is where she brings in as she's been reading a lot of um of, of Simone Vey, um in the late 40s mm. and into the, into the early 50s and indeed it, 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 it inhabits a lot of her fiction as well that actually we have to train ourselves to actually have the correct perception of others and if we do that if we, if our minds are turned towards you know, recognizing the goodness of the other and they're kind of their existence really that they exist beyond beyond ourselves that their existence kind of ex- escapes any framework that we want to uh, that we want to place on them that actually then the choices that we make which are almost always involved with an, an another that be it a, 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 a human or indeed a non-human entity uh, be it an animal or in, indeed relating to how we um, how we treat and manage um, the world That actually if we ha- already have that vision in our minds and our, our mind is kind of actively seeking out the good in others and in and in the, in our environment, then actually our choices will always be um, attuned to those and actually we will make the right choice. We won't need to worry about the different choices that we make. We will always instinctively know the choice that, hmm. that is to be made.
0: I think, yeah, I, I think this is an even more powerful and difficult proposal from Murdoch when it's compared to what she thinks are default state is mentally sure so when she discusses in the sovereignty of good um an essay that she wrote she discusses the fat relentless ego could you explain a little bit what she thinks our default mental state is
1: quite straightforward that it's selfish that actually um we want to be able to consider and um and form the world in in, to our own benefit and, and to our um our own desires and then she says to actually to go beyond that and to and to crack the ego is the absolutely vital thing that we um, that we that we do in life. And she and, and although she doesn't um, fully sign up as a as a Freudian to consider how the ego is working, she says that actually Freud probably got a lot of things right in thinking that actually it's this um, how we deal with our inner life and how we balance out our desires is absolutely essential for considering um not just the goodness of ourselves, but the uh, the kind of the, uh, the, the the flourishing of of other individuals, and actually, if other individuals flourish, then we can as well. So, yeah, to to try and move beyond ourselves, to kind of sit and attend, um, not just quietly um, and meditatively, as Simone Veil would say, but actually then to have attention in action. I think that's all mm. that separates um, Simone Veil and, and and Murdoch. Murdoch takes Veil a step further. Um, says actually no attention has to be active it has to be active towards the other um, it, we can't just sort of sit and meditate although that is a po- important step along the way and by doing so and our ego won't prevent our actions from from being um you know as, as right as they could be
0: yeah you can definitely see why this would have gained more of a following in recent years when you can see that the rest of ethics is very focused on actions in the abstract and there's very little attention paid to the mental yeah. state of the agents engaging in the action
1: mm. absolutely no she's got a, she's got a lot to say to ethics and particularism i think you know she, she's got a role mm-hmm. to play in care ethics as well and um, perhaps one that she hasn't been given so much but but, but yeah, as you say this this, this connection between the interactivity of the mind and the moral agency of the you know, of the and the doing of the action is, is, is so important for murdoch
0: So to move on from her philosophy for a second to her literature, who and what were her primary subjects in literature?
1: Okay, so in regards to characterisation, she's often been criticised for, um, I guess, some people would say recycling characters or recycling ideas for characters. Uh quite often you'll have a um a major power figure, quite, or thought of as an enchanter figure within a novel that uh that causes the narrative to develop. You might have um an innocent or a good man or um, or indeed an innocent or a good woman um in reaction to that enchanter figure. They may well be under their spell and have to break free of them. Uh we might have a damaged older man or a damaged older person um who is dealing with trauma or grief or a um or or evil mm-hmm. in that evil broadly broadly defined um in their earlier life and they they're trying to move beyond this and trying to get out of that kind of solipsistic self, self kind of mm. revealing kind of narcissistic vision of themselves perhaps and, and move on and, and, and develop um we've also got you know a kind of um a court of maybe civil servants uh refugees are really important priests and religious figures philosophers uh romantic teenage uh figures uh, both male and female um all of these kind of um create the world of, of of murdoch's novels all of them have um i guess are also we're allowed inside their minds we can see them reflecting um although some of the, the most evil power figures i'm thinking perhaps of Julius king in um in a fairly honourable defeat, or maybe Misha Fox in Flight from the Enchanted, all have a particular angle mm-hmm. and 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 a desire and a kind of a one track mind of what they want to achieve within this within within the, uh, the, the on this with on the, on the stage in which they're acting. Um, so yeah, you've got those kind of um, those kind of stock figures that um, that come in and out, but um, quite often the the central character is has a lack um, or is trying to um, move away from a damaging relationship or feels that they need to develop in, in, in some way. And um, the other characters in the novel either help or hinder, and there's usually groups of, you know, a, um, a, a group of friends or, group, or a, um, a familial group mm. that uh, kind of either help or hinder the development of that character. So, uh it's difficult to you know, with twenty-six novels. It's difficult to talk about in in general terms. But this, these these are the kinds of ideas that we've got going on with, within her mm. fiction, and people trying to make sense of the world as well. You know, Jake Donahue in her first novel, Under the Net, trying to come to terms with the contingency of the world. And I guess it's like this question about form and contingency, and the, just the sheer weirdness of how coincidence and and um, possibility work within the fiction is is really important. In regards to themes of the novels talks a little bit i guess a little bit about that but the damage that we do to each other by not comprehending the real needs of the other person that's so important yeah. both to a fiction and philosophy um love that exalts but also love that can damage is a really important one grief over action or grief over the the, the loss of a loved one uh, remorse over over um, actions that occur uh, quite often novels will open with a kind of a, um, a a scene of of remorse or a scene looking back to the past and then we move on into the, in, into the future mm. but also i think there's there's a lot of characters that are searching for something searching for god or searching for love or searching for some form of connection uh so yeah it's there are a lot of the a lot of the novels are about the perceptions of individuals and in the world they inhabit and we're, we're we're brought into this kind of murdoch land and um I guess she she does have a particular way of um, of writing her novels that, that that is very unique to her, um, and um, certainly when we think about the the, the um, eighteen I think novels that are set in London, they all have a very distinctive character, and um, London almost becomes a character within the novel mm. um, those those novels and how it interacts with them. It's uh, yeah they're, they're they're great. I mean I'll, I'll probably um, suggest one or two for uh, listeners who haven't listened uh, haven't read one of one of Murdoch's uh, novels yet. Later on the podcast,
0: yeah yeah definitely no that's great it's interesting that you um sort of point to that as well that moral development can sometimes be one of the main things that changes over the book or like one of the plot
1: drivers or oh absolutely yeah this this question of vision mm. uh, that we discussed earlier in relation to the philosophy how often characters are you know quite navel-gazing to begin with and then at the end they they are they are allowed to in a certain sense if we see that as Murdoch kind of allowing our characters to develop mm although there's a lot of I I think her characters are free to to move in various ways that actually towards the end some characters are given this right vision but others are not and um and even for some good characters you know there, there are actions within the world that actually either damage them or indeed destroy them at the end so there's no kind of payoff if you like that we might find in some more sentimental novels where everybody gets their just mm. desserts at the end. That doesn't always happen in a Murdoch novel. In fact, I think the best novels that she writes are the ones where they don't, because that thing right. makes us question the reality of the novels in regards to the reality as we see it, as, as lived experience in the world.
0: Brilliant. So the next section that I want to discuss is I want to kind of think a bit more about this idea of vision uh, alongside the place of art within Murdoch's philosophy and literature. So, the first question that I want to ask is what role does art play in Murdoch's philosophical arguments? Uh, And how does this use of art link to her idea of a moral perception or vision?
1: I guess the first thing to say is um, that within her philosophy, she doesn't do dry philosophy. Mm. Um, By which I mean there are very often real-world examples used within it. In fact, her first um, published work, Such Romantic Rationalist, is a commentary on Sartre and his engagement with the world, but it isn't done primarily in relationship to being a nothingness. It's done in relationship to uh Lanozé, it's done in relationship to his his plays and his fiction. Uh and because that's where she sees um Sartre's work as really playing out best Mm. and how we can best access it. And I think perhaps um she would say the same for um other writers that 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 straddle the boundary. Then she says this in Anessa. she says that art is my and good art is, to use another platonic term, animasis, memory of what we did not know we knew, and art holds the mirror up to mm. nature. Of course, this reflection or imitation does not mean slavish or photographic copying, but it's important to hold on to the idea that art is about the world. It exists for us standing out against the background of our ordinary knowledge. Art may extend this knowledge, but is also tested by it. So whenever she uses an example of art, and it's not just um, when we might just think about paintings, and of course, we're, I know we're going to come on later and, and think about um, paintings mm. and, and fiction. But when she thinks about artwork um, in any of her philosophical work, or e- even indeed in the in her essays that she writes that are, again, kind of um, straddle the boundary between art and literature and, and philosophy, something like against dryness, she says that actually... Um, what art can provide us with in the broadest sense, both you know fine art, music, literature, sculpture, and so on, it can provide us with with moments of clarity it can provide us with moments that draw draw us out of ourselves so when she uses real world examples within her philosophy, what she 's trying to do I think is to is to have a little break, a little pause in the in the essay and to draw us to thinking about how that might it might relate to us now, how we might actually think about this. Not just as a a, a construct as kind of a, a a philosophical theoretical construct, but how it might be um, applicable, how it might almost be practical, and I think that's also something that she wants to deal with mm. in the novels as well
0: yeah that that particularly reminds me of the the example of the the castrel soaring overhead in the sovereignty of the Good. yes, of course i just I found that amazing, and when it came up in the essay it's supposed to be an example of being drawn outside of your own fantasizing ego to suddenly pay attention to something beautiful in the world but yeah i just found that a really striking example
1: yeah she said i'm I'm meditating on a on a hurt or i'm meditating on on something that's happened to me and yet i look out of the window and um yeah and see this see the sovereign and and, and all of Mm. all at once the world is changed and my and i'm no longer in myself i'm outside and um yeah, the, the 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 Kestrel is is such an is important one, and um, and so is uh, her her uh, the the mother-in-law and daughter-in-law mm. example. That perhaps we'll mention later this this idea, which is where Murdoch says, "Let's look again, let's look again." And she's not just saying, you know, the physical act of looking. It's actually about the vision that we talked about earlier. It's actually how do I comprehend mm. this individual in my mind? How do I work them out? Um, which is so important. But it's also about it is about the, um, the, the physical attributes as well of this person or you know this daughter-in-law or this Kestrel. It's also about what, what the actions that they're performing in the world um, and how they are radically a- mm. apart from us and so just doing their own thing. The, the existence of the Kestrel does not d- depend on me or on me looking at it or me thinking about it. It just is, and I think that's, that's what's quite radical in Murdoch's philosophy is to think about these examples.
0: There was something you said about art holding a mirror up to nature. And that there was this other quote from, from Murdoch that also pulls on the, that idea of art as being impersonal as, and as showing reality. She says that the greatest art is impersonal because it shows us the world, our world and not another one. Yes. Does that perhaps link to what you were saying earlier where she, she sort of claims that her novels are, are not personal? Is she trying to make them into impersonal art?
1: I think well, she's trying to ape. Ape is no, sorry, ape is the wrong word. She's 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 she, um, she's trying to become as as good as her um, her heroes mm. and heroines, as or, um, her authorial heroes and heroines. Um, Jane Austen, Henry James, Dickens, Dostoevsky. In in Against Ryan she says that this was you know the nineteenth century was the best time for fiction that that, that we've lo- We have lost. We, we are lacking a general set sense of concepts. Mm. This is what we lack. And actually, if we return to these, um, these, major, these major novelists and actually see what they're trying to do with it, they're trying to talk about universals. They're trying to talk about not just they're not writing out themselves. I think we could probably say for Dickens that in certain novels, he is um, drawing so much on his own life and on his own ideas. But yet the, the characters are free. They're three dimensional. Um, she, you know, she she quotes um, or paraphrases Henry James this idea that the, the novel should be a, a house fit for free characters to live in. Mm. And, um, and she, you know, they especially Portrait of a, La- uh, Portrait of a Lady um, Golden Bowl, for example, she holds up as exemplars of this. That actually it's when the novelist steps back and you can't feel them there. You're just kind of let into this world. This idea of negative capability that Keats says about Shakespeare, that you can't find Shakespeare in the work you just feel that you are placed into this world um, mm. and that you don't feel the hand of the author or some kind of didactic moral wagging finger and um, saying well this is what you should really get from from this play or from this novel this is what she this is what she wants to do she wants to be as good as they are and uh, on occasion i think she manages it
2: mm.
0: yeah i think we'll put a put a pen in the shakespeare point because i want to return to that a little bit later yeah um, of
1: course but for the moment,
0: let's return to the role of uh, art in Murdoch's literature. So a few, a few of Murdoch's characters, Dora in The Bell and Tim in Nuns and Soldiers, and you've mentioned many others, have important experiences in the National Gallery and with an experience of art. So what role does art play in Murdoch's literature?
1: Be- before I talk about that, mm. I just want to say something that Mar- art played a hugely important uh, role in Murdoch's life. Wherever she went she would go and visit art galleries if she was abroad and, and get inspiration from them. Mm. And she'd always say, if she was suffering from writer's block, uh, she would go and visit an art gallery and let the paintings speak to her. And she would get inspiration from these. Um, whether it's from uh, Franz Hals's The Laughing Cavalier that she uses in Under the Nets, or Gainsborough's portrait of his two daughters in The Bell, uh, the Bronzino in The Nice and the Good, uh, and so on. There are you know, the, the inspiration that she draws and how she kind of works that in uh to the fiction is is absolutely essential. But yeah, she she uses the artwork in in the nice and the good she actually uses the entirety of, of the bronzino painting, uh, to um kind of structure the narrative. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a vitally important novel for those of um those listeners who are interested in how Art and art and painting, and and, and the, the novel form work, and it's also quite a good introduction, I think, if you've never read any Murdoch, go and read *Nice and the Good*. It's it's a great novel. In *The Bell*, it's a real moment of clarity for one of our central characters, um, Dora. Um, in *The Bell*, we're let into the the consciousness of three major characters, and uh, Dora being the first and perhaps perhaps the most important. And um, there's a wonderful moment. Perhaps I could read a little bit and we can...
0: uh... Yeah, yeah, for sure. That'd be great.
1: Yeah, is that all right? That'd be great. Uh, So this is uh, chapter 14. Um, So I'm using the vintage copy on page 207. So what's happened? I'm not going to spoil the story. But um, Dora has um, been at Imbercourt, which is a kind of a quasi-religious retreat house attached to to an abbey where her husband is. Uh, She and her husband do not get on. And she um, returns back to London, back to the arms of her lover, Noel. Um, But then her husband rings up and say, um, rings Noel's flat and says, where are you? And she doesn't respond. But what she does hear is not Paul's voice, but she hears a blackbird singing by Paul, and she can hear this down the telephone. And she immediately kind of, there's a, there's a kind of a moment in her mind where she feels, I must get in a taxi, and I must go to the, the National Gallery and have a wander around. And, um, and this is what she does. Dora was always moved by the pictures. Today she was moved, but in a new way. She marvelled with a kind of gratitude that they were all still here and her heart was filled with love for the pictures, their authority, their marvellous generosity, their splendour. It occurred to her that here at last was something real and something perfect. Who had said that about perfection and reality being in the same place? Here was something which her consciousness could not wretchedly devour, and by making it part of her fantasy make it worthless. Even Paul, she thought, only existed now as someone she dreamt about, or else as a vague external menace, never really encountered and understood. But the pictures were something real outside herself, which spoke to her kindly, and yet in sovereign tones, something superior and good whose presence destroyed the dreary trance-like solipsism of her earlier mood. When the world had seemed to be subjective, it had seemed to be without interest or value. But now there was something else in it. These thoughts, not clearly articulated, filtered through Dora's mind, She had never thought about the pictures in this way before, nor did she draw now any very explicit moral. Yet she felt that she had had a revelation. She looked at the radiant, sombre, tender, powerful canvas of Gainsborough and felt a sudden desire to go down on her knees before it, embracing it, shedding tears. Dora looked anxiously about her, wondering if anyone had noticed her transports. Although she had not actually prostrated herself, Her face must have looked unusually ecstatic and the tears were in fact starting into her eyes. She found that she was alone in the room and smiled, restored to a more calm enjoyment of her wisdom. She gave a last look at the painting, still smiling, as one might smile in a temple, favoured, encouraged and loved. Then she turned and began to leave the building.
0: Yeah, that is fantastic.
1: And that in miniature is how Murdoch sees art as being, you know, we a form of transcendence mm. when we really look at it and we really have that vision.
0: Yeah, that's great. And there's also something that literature can really do there because if you actually, if you saw Dora in the gallery, you'd see that more as a moment of personal fantasy than as a moment of seeing reality. Like that's what she's kind of aware of at the end. But yeah, this kind of serves as Murdoch's testimony in a way. So to the possibility of that vision.
1: Yes. Yes. It's, and it's interesting how get different characters react to react to the art. Jake, and under the net when he approaches uh, Franz House's laughing cavalier, sees it as still there and still kind of a, a, a kind of a, a static point, almost like a, a, a locus around which he can um, kind of settle himself, because it's it's unlike the rest of the, the developing mm. contingent world. It, it remains it remains a, a, a form of, of perfection. But yeah, they, but for Dora, it's a it's a it's a slightly different experience. Um, and there are moments of transcendence in Murdoch's novels, connected to art, and but also connected to 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 nature and to near death as well and Murdoch doesn't say just you can't it's not just about going and looking at fine art you can be moved by uh, music by opera or by falling in a bog and nearly drowning on the west coast of Ireland there are various ways in which this can happen to you
0: yeah that's great so I I think this kind of gets us into the spirit of the next section um which is what does Murdoch's fiction aim to do yeah so the first question that I wanted to ask here which links a lot to what we've just been talking about is uh yeah this is what I'm picking up that pin that we put in Shakespeare. Mm. When Murdoch gives a literary example of near-perfect art, it's almost always Shakespeare. Does she think that her own literature has the ability to provide clarity and reveal reality? Or, if the bar is set so high... Um, could her efforts just serve to intensify people's fantasies and draw them further from reality? I I just found this quote when I was thinking about this question Mm. Um, she said that we can see in mediocre art where perhaps it is even more clearly seen than in mediocre conduct, the intrusion of fantasy the assertion of self the dimming of any reflection of the real world
1: Yes, she says that mediocre art basically comforts us, it takes us into ourselves it just, it, it, it pampers our ego really That's how she sees mediocre Mm. art, whereas the the highest forms of art actually can help us, or indeed sometimes do, crack the ego and make us realise that actually we are just one very small part of a a much larger reality.
0: Mm. So would it it be a concern for her that potentially her art could fulfil that role rather than...
1: That could be comforting.
0: Yeah, I mean is in if she if she sets the role if she sets perfection so high, you know, Shakespeare is only near perfection and it's only real art that can have this experience on you.
1: Yeah, I and I guess she, yeah, she she venerates Shakespeare and she has this major periods in between her tenth and eleventh novel where she takes um eighteen months out and she reads all of the plays and all of the um all the sonnets. And mm. from that moment on you can feel even though there has been interest in Shakespeare before that actually Shakespeare now imbues um, all of her work. And certainly, as you go into the 70s and 80s, you know, you know, the, the impact of the Black Prince on Hamlet, for example, yeah. or Midsummer Night's Dream on um, on some of the later works is is so is so important. Um, and you get this kind of the, this shift between a very st- a strong shift between how she's trying to mould Shakespearean com- um, comedy and tragedy in, into the artworks. And some and sometimes it comes off very well. Other other times perhaps not so much. But um, I think I'd, I'd like to kind of mention that. Um, this idea that although we should aim towards perfection, that we're actually what she um, says in, in one of her uh, one of her most famous quotes, I think, is not uh, be therefore perfect, but be therefore slightly improved. And I think she would see her work as aiming towards that. But you know, there's there's really different ways to read the novels, and she wants to engage with the novel on its on our own terms, but also on the terms of the novel. And she feels that if she's entertained us and told a good yarn, then that's fine. That's what she's. There. She, you know, she is a storyteller. And that's fine. If that's what you get out of it and you've just enjoyed it for the sheer, you know, the sheer fun of the novel. Great. Of course, if you want to look for the range of allusions to other works of literature, theology, artwork, artwork and metaphor that we've just mentioned with the bell. And, of course, philosophy. I mean, there are chunks of philosophy in there, both in obvious and also quite um, subversive ways. It's all there waiting for you. And you can come as an academic, but you can also come as a general reader. Um, You can come as a a teenager for the first time. You can come as, approach a middle-aged person or an older person. You're always going to get something different out of the novels. They read us as much as we read them, I think. They tell us about ourselves. Yeah, no, I I think that's
0: very true. I was wondering as well whether we could see her fiction as an attempt at moral education sometimes. Whether she had, I don't know whether she had that aim herself, but also just independently, whether you could see her fiction.
1: And I, I would say an education i would say an education in, in so many ways um, but mor- i I'd, I'd say it's not a didactic moral education there isn't um there isn't a moral at the end of the story you don't have a kind of a um, a coda where mm. she kind of says and now this is what i really think and this is what you should have got out of the novel um there's nothing like that um in fact she she sort of scrupulously tries to avoid that so they're not they're not didactic works of fiction. They don't come preloaded with the belief that she wants you to kind of synthesise your own life or take away with you. There's no high handed morality. I think we can see this in the kind of the randomness of the terror attack at the end of the Sacred and Profane Love Machine, which is although it won the uh, the Whitbread, I don't it's mm. not now considered one of her greatest. So I think it's very good. Or the openness to what a, a literary critic might call an extra textual reality, a reality that can continue after the novel. And I think the, the novels are open in that sense to a wide range of. Less than perfect characters, or even awful characters. So the demonic Julius King at the end of *A Fairly Honourable Defeat*, for example, gets away scot-free, mm-hmm. and he's and he's wandering the streets of Paris and having a wonderful time. But he's really a, a metaphor for the, for the devil walking walking the earth. And she draws on the Book of Job, and she draws on so much else besides in that in that novel. Or perhaps even to a slightly lesser degree, going back to the Bell, one of our other major characters, Michael Mead. She she allows him at the end. To not really have a, a a complete sea change in his attitude and his vision because he she allows him to go back to teaching and perhaps to um, you know to continue his abuse of, um, of of young people at the end of the bell. So judgment isn't handed down from on high. Um, sometimes characters are just left to get on with it. And Murdoch is suggesting, well, you know, not everybody who has has these particular types types of experiences is really going to change their vision, or evil characters will just evil will continue in the world. Or even good characters at the end um, may just get killed in a random terrorist attack. It's just kind of um, abrupt and um, and awful. But she says, "Well, this is how life is." Mm. So the, these, this kind of comfort isn't there. I would say, um, although, for, of course, for some characters, like Dora at the end, Dora at the end of the um, at the end of the Bell, she's going to go what She's going to leave her husband. Mm-hmm. She's going to have a wonderful life. She can now swim, which is a really important moral kind of um, part of the moral life for Murdoch. Is if you can swim. Um, if you can swim at the end of a novel, you're usually doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you can't at the beginning, but you can at the end, you've gone through a kind of a a major transformation in your life. Yeah. She thought that swimming was such an important spiritual activity.
2: Mm.
0: I think that's definitely an answer to a question of to what extent Murdoch was directly aiming to imbue moral lessons with with what she was writing. But especially... The way that she writes about morality is this kind of transformation. She's not giving you specific, she doesn't prescribe you to go and look at artworks or anything like that. She's trying to like describe the rough shape of uh becoming better.
1: Sure. And she says you can do this and she says you can do it in a number of ways, although if you want to go and look at art, then absolutely feel free because it may well help you.
0: Yeah, and it, there is something in her books in that just the attention to uh, and the sympathy for just such a range of characters that can help you at least you know move somewhere but towards like understanding other people i don 't know if that's particularly unique to murdoch 's fiction or just to good literature in general
1: but i I've made the case of probably good literature in general about the the un, the understanding of other people and again going, going back to those nineteenth century novelists that we talked about but it, it isn't mm. just um, restricted to them of course. I think all you know the, the great novelists of whatever period you 're talking about will will give you an aspect of the reality of the other, whether that's their external realities or their conscious life or However, or their past authors are always trying to do this. I think, and the best authors mm. do this in such a way that it draws us out of ourselves, and and not just places us in the mind of our, our major protagonist and makes us feel sympathetic for them, but um, gets us to consider them in a in a quite different way.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I find it particularly, or I find it particularly powerful when she's talking about characters which are moral failures in some sense. So yeah. <laughs> you know, like Charles Araby in um, The Sea, the Sea. Yes, like he's not. He's just a kind of a perfect egoist. He's like focused purely on his own obsessions and following them. He never asks he he he's never even thinking about what other people could possibly be thinking unless it's instrumental to to his goals. And I find that really interesting because it's like I don't think it's how I think, but it's definitely a way that you can you can sort of move towards that way of thinking and away from it. So,
1: yeah, of course, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, she often gets castigated for for having for having no first person female narrators, right? But she has six mm. of her twenty six novels. Six of them are first person male narrators, but all of them mm. are pretty awful. Um, I mean, Jake Jake, <laughs> yeah. Jake, Jake Jake's, Jake's fun, but he's also a, you know he's he's quite a, a fun cheerful character. But if you look a bit deeper, he's a, he's actually a, a dreadful misogynist and and, a, and an abuser, um, yeah. and a, and a stalker. But and, but you know, if you you go on to yeah, mm-hmm. a um, a Bradley Pearson in the Black Prince, or as you say, Charles Araby, all of these. Men, particularly the older, middle-aged men. I think Jake can go go through goes through the revelation and says the end of the um, end of under the net. You know, he considers the contingency of the world and and um, and the, kind of what he's, what murdoch says is the thinginess of the world. Mm. But the end at the end of the the Black Prince and um, the see the Sea, for example. um Do, do they really have, have they really changed their vision, or are they are they still as narcissistic and as awful mm. as at the beginning? And um, murdoch often gets criticised for not being you know more of a feminist author, and yet she's holding up a mirror i think to um you know a particular form of toxic masculinity in the mid to late 20th century that um perhaps read in a different way could actually see sees her as being very highly critical of, of exactly that point
0: yeah definitely they're not they're not sympathetic characters although you're drawn into sympathy with them as you read it but they don't
1: that's that and that that's her genius i think that's the genius of the work yeah
0: great well yeah i'll just move on to. Our final section. I've I've titled this moral reality, which might be a bit ambitious, but yeah, I was just wondering that there's this implication in the way that Murdoch sometimes speaks about vision and seeing reality in the context um, of morality Mm. uh, that implies that there is the that there is a way the world is morally speaking outside of us. Yes. Can you speak a bit about how Murdoch gets to this point and why she thinks it's worth defending
1: the world outside of ourselves? Yeah, I mean, it it comes she. It comes from, I think, a combination of four philosophers that are so important to her, and that's Plato, uh, Wittgenstein, Simone Weil, and Freud. I mean, Freud generally under- understood, perhaps not as a philosopher, but as a, as a kind of a, a, a major figure in in her thinking. Mm-hmm. The combination of those four and how she works through them throughout her philosophical career, career is is, is, so, is so important. But I, I, the central strand in Murdoch's view is that moral reality is other persons and and is outside of our ourselves. Mm. So but she's not thinking of other persons as a kind of an aggregate or as um, as instances of a category. Rather what she's thinking of is a moral agent's moral reality consists in the individual reality of each person and each other person one at a time. So as we've talked about earlier, she says that we're prone to fantasy and egoism. So on God and Good she talks about the fat relentless ego, right? And this blocks us from being able to see other persons clearly. She goes on to say, well, if this is the case then we haven't got a lived recognition of their separateness and differentness from us, mm. and that grasping this is so important, um, and our ego must be silent. She calls it unselfing. She borrows that from Simone Weil's idea of décréation, this decreation of the of the ego, in order to grasp reality. And she so she thinks that the grasping of reality um, of um, of other people, but also of the world outside of ourselves, it comes in degrees. That actually we we've got to aim, and she she draws, of course, time and time again, on uh, the Platonic allegory of the cave. We've got to move towards the sun. We've got to move away from the false false fire um, of our own creation, if you like, of our own of our own ego, and move towards the the light that's beyond us and above us. This idea of, the, of moving towards the good, and she speaks of levels of understandings, of pay people, of concepts and of ideas, and that she co- connects this idea of this Platonic idea of perfectionism, I guess that holds out the perfect understanding of a kind of a moral standard again that's in in got on god and good so i'd definitely tell you know tell listeners to if they haven't read that one yet to go and obviously get get that Mm. and have a look at it but she says there's a real moral challenge of knowing the other and it differs for each individual agent and it differs for between person because the task and challenge of knowing depends on our family background our cultural background our religious background where we are in the world our economic background as well she's Aware of the economics and the politics of of, of people as well, but um, I suppose I'd also say something briefly about this idea that it can include. I know we've talked about the Kestrel, mm. but natural objects, trees, animals, but also non animate objects. She talks about stones a lot um, in the fiction. This this idea that that we can all, we can affect the world, um, conceptual objects as well. Thinking about how we how we use language, and certainly as she moves through her. Korea, and certainly into Metaphysics a Guide to Morals, she sees an appreciation in of reality in a, in a kind of a manifold detail, really. And this idea that moral aspiration has got to be connected to living beings, but it's also got to be uh, connected to natural objects. So this idea of moral reality outside of ourselves has to be connected to all of these things.
0: It's really great to hear you say that, because I when I was reading some of the stuff like, about Murdoch... It's sometimes implied that she's a moral realist, and the sense of moral realist that we hear in philosophy today normally refers to something very different to what Murdoch's talking about. It refers to like uh certain moral sentences being true for everybody or something like that yeah and that this this yeah. is great because this is a different type of reality which doesn't require that to be true, but she's really focusing sure. in on just how just how hard it is to really experience people outside yourselves and really experience the the moral reality which comes from
1: that and and that's and that's true that's true and she and she says that um you know falling in love you know falling in love is such an important um moment for the recognition of the reality of the other but what people don't quite often um see is that um it's not just the falling in love with our what what, we might want to be our life partner but it's also, um, she says that, um, and this is something that she hasn't experienced herself. But it's the um, the reality of of mm. um, having a child, um, and that idea of um, of of complete selfless giving love to a child, and the enormous kind of shift in your own perception of yourself, and the opening up of yourself to the, the reality of mm. that other person, who's completely dependent on you for everything for years, is is a really important thing. And she she says that love is ex- the um, the experience of love. Um, and how it can change us, can be seen between two people, but it's best experienced within the um, within the familial group. And that's, for me, a really interesting mm. suggestion as well that she's putting out there, Really, in- really interesting proposal.
0: So I think from the discussion we've had on art and moral reality and what her fiction does, I think that we have the resources to answer the kind of titular question of this podcast. So does Murdoch have a good answer to our central question? Can fiction help us see the world as it really is?
1: And the answer is yes, I think. And it's not just fiction either. Um, she says that fiction isn't mm. the most immediate of art forms. It's actually music is the most immediate of art forms. But also the perception of paintings. I, I guess with a novel, as opposed to... Po- I mean, poetry can do the same thing. But, she's, um, but novels take a while to get mm. going. They take more attention. They take more time, ultimately. Whereas music can just hit us immediately. And the perception of a painting as we saw with Dora can just hit us i mean in, in the bell dora is wandering through the art gallery and she looks at other she doesn't go directly to the gainsborough she looks at other paintings as well but then it's the gainsborough that hits her and perhaps it's the same with fiction as well you can read n- numerous novels and it it's only you know one in maybe one in 10 maybe one in 50 that will hit you in that particular way but yes as an art form fiction can do this and not only art, but the natural world as well. Everything, anything that she says that can draw our focus on mm. in the inner and perhaps false reality of ourselves to an outer one. So, and I've talked a little bit about it earlier, but this idea of attention um, and in Simone Weil, such an important, um, such an important um, idea. And and she really does read Plato. I think through Simone Weil's work. She clearly she's obviously studies Plato um, during her undergraduate years. But when she would re- but when she reads. Simone Weil and then returns to Plato. Her vision of Plato has changed quite substantially. I think. and this idea of the idea of a just and loving gaze upon an individual reality, um, this idea of let's look again, the um, the um, the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law. That's what it's meant to illustrate, right? This idea of a just and loving gaze. Mm. Um, it's interesting that she combines those two ideas. That it's actually about justice and love. This kind of combination that we find there, um, and it's not just about accuracy either. That constitutes what a just and loving gaze might be uh, learning more details about someone for example is not just what loving and, and, and attention provides it can be somebody it can this idea of, of perception can be far more than that i think somebody like judas king this like, this demonic figure in fairly Love the feet that, that he's very perceptive he's very attuned to people's reality he he forces people mm. in a sense to um retreat into their own egos and to think that other people are in love with them when they're not, and that causes the, the downfall of relationships within within that novel. But yet Judas himself is incapable really of loving because he is completely shut off from, from that way, but he wants to kind of be the enchanter, be be the be the demonic kind of um enchanter figure there. So I think it's and it's it's part of a process and it's both cognitive but it's also perceptual, I think. And for Murdoch, I think this this is what forms um, our moral capability as as well as our cognitive capability. This idea is both of morality and evaluation. And she says that both of these need to be aspects of our reality in order to kind of function and how important those are. In some regards, I suppose she would see this idea of uh, morality and cognition as being the the classic kind of charioteer Mm -hmm. um, analogy um, she would see those as the two horses pulling us along. um that actually we've got to we've got to have both in in tandem, and they've both got to be working at the same time in order for us to progress in the moral life.
0: Fantastic answer. Thanks for having this discussion with me. It's been brilliant. it's been really interesting.
1: No, it's a it's a real pleasure.
0: Before we move on to some bonus questions that we've got from the Twitter, would you like to recommend a Murdoch book for people who are interested in reading her literature and perhaps something for her philosophy as I'd well? Love to. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, itching to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I'm itching to do that. And I guess from the, our conversation over the last you know, hour or so, mm-hmm. people have probably got a fair idea uh, of where to go. I think if you've never read Murdoch before, if you're a philosopher, read The Bell or Under the Net. Those are the two there um, earlier careers. So Under the Net, the first, The Bell is the fourth they're both fairly short they're both about 300 pages long mm. i think you'd love them i think there's so much to gain from that um this kind of don't worry about the vexed question of whether she's a philosophical novelist or not she certainly isn't in the sense that sartre is in in the nausea. she's trying to promote a particular mm. vision or view of reality or a, a way of um of acting in the world she's opening up questions um she's not giving us um, not giving us answers um but yeah there's some um, there are some novels that i'd say don't go there just yet. I think, you know, some people would say, "Oh, you can read the Sea the Sea straight off." Mm. I would say you've got to build up to the Sea the Sea. The long, as a rule of thumb, the longer the Murdoch novel, um, yeah. the more it takes building up to. Uh, so the Nice and the Good is great. Um, Fairly on of Black Prince and the Sea the Sea build up to them. Don't don't attack them straight away. Go for the Bell or Under the Net first. As far as philosophy goes, get yourself a copy of Existential and, Existentialists and Mystics. Um, which came out in 97. You can get it very cheaply in paperback for £2, 3 pounds 3 $4. Dollars. Um, it's it's very, very widely available. The great thing about that the, um, that collection is it's got the entirety of The Sovereignty of Good essays, the three essays in that. It's got her work on uh, Plato and The Fire and the Sun. It's got her essays on politics, um, her essays on art, on literature, and so much else besides. And also... The transcription of her interview with Brian McGee uh, from the seventies, which is, um, you know, a, a really good in in getting to thinking about um, thinking about Murdoch. So, those those would be my my two recommendations.
0: Yeah, great recommendations. I think I've followed a lot of those already. So, <laughs>
1: okay. So, as a bonus
0: question that we got from our Twitter, did Murdoch think about the relationship between our experience of reading fiction and our ordinary experience? So, we've discussed a little bit about. The difference between the experience of philosophy of reading philosophy and reading fiction, but yeah, what's the what's this yes. other relationship?
1: So how we how we might consider them both in tandem, I guess is and, and what she says about that. Mm. Yes. So what what, uh, what you need to do is you need to get yourself in, in the mystics, or indeed you can find it freely available online. Is her essay against dryness, where she actually considers where we are. So this is published in 1961. And it's a kind of a um it's a consideration of art and literature post Second World War and how we might deal with that. She says, um that what we need to do, she says, we need to return from the self-centred concept of sincerity to the other centred concept of truth. We are not isolated free choosers, monarchs of all we survey, but benighted creatures sunk in a reality whose nature we are constantly and overwhelmingly tempted to deform by fantasy. And she says we've got a couple of different forms of literature and she goes on to talk about how we might Consider those, she says. We've got the this journalistic form, and we've got this crystalline form, and we've got these kind of quasi-mystic crystalline novels, and we've got these much more rangy journalistic ones. And she says, what we've got to do is try to find a path between them. And she says, but ultimately, what what we've got to do, and what I mentioned earlier, is is return to this this the form of the of the 19th century novel where life in its entirety comes in. That actually, the author needs to step away and not allow their own ego. Um, to come into the discussion so much It's this this idea that um, she starts off with saying that it's a complaint that I wish to make, but actually um, what is the function of of the writer and the function of of, of philosophy, and how we move on in the in the post uh, World War Two era to considering how f- fiction should function, and that actually you know the the life of the mind should not be divorced from the life of morality, and how we should consider our post Christian world, how we should um, you know keep the figure of goodness keep this kind of demythologized christ figure as well all of these ideas come into play um, mm. and um, all of them she says should be um, considered within literature so yeah that's that kind of uh, combination how, how we can think about the relationship between the two is, is brought out very nicely i think in that essay
0: yeah that's another great recommendation Mars, and i think a great place to end the podcast thanks so much for coming on Hello and thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm planning a few more episodes soon. The next will be coming out in two weeks, a discussion with David Woods on the subject of evil. I've been really pleased that so many of you have listened to my episode so far. As there are a few of you listening now, I wondered if I could ask you something. I do this podcast for fun, but I'd also like to get something out of it. Specifically, I'd love to get better at asking the right questions and making podcasts. You can help me do that by sending me feedback. If it's positive, I'll love it. If it's critical, I'll learn from it. And I'll love that. If you have anything to say that could improve the show, I've put an anonymous feedback form in the description. And if you're on Spotify, there's a button for you to rate the episode out of five. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.